Rockford, Illinois is a town known for its industries and manufacturing. While locals view this town as an opportunity for bettering their lives in a blue-collar position, tourists know Rockford for a different reason. The town is famous for one of the first female baseball teams, the Rockford Peaches, which appeared in the movie A League of Their Own. Rockford, Illinois ranks in the top three for the most violent cities in the United States. One of the more recent cases includes Katrina Smith. Katrina Smith was a beautiful 30-year-old woman who lived a life filled with happiness in McChesney Park, Illinois. She had been married to the person she considered to be the love of her life, Todd Smith. He had previously been married, so during their nuptials, she gained three stepchildren. By all accounts, she was described as a great stepmother. The happy couple had recently celebrated their seventh wedding anniversary by taking a trip to Washington, D.C., but they were also celebrating Katrina's recent good news. She was excited about an upcoming job interview she had a dream job she was eager to begin. On October 22, 2012, Katrina was doing laundry and other chores around her home. Later that evening, she used her husband's laptop to send off a couple of emails to her potential employer. She then left her Tedder Hall Lane home to spend the night at a friend's house, as she was house-sitting for them. It was a normal Friday on October 23, 2012, when authorities received a phone call from Todd Smith stating that his wife Katrina was house-sitting for someone, but he was unable to contact her. He further explained that he was worried because he received a phone call from her employer stating she did not show up for work. He immediately became anxious because this was uncharacteristic of his wife. Todd further reached out to his wife's sister, Miranda, to see if she had heard from Katrina. Upon receiving the news that her sister did not show up for work, her stomach sank. She immediately called her mother about Katrina's disappearance. Todd looked to be a grieving husband, coordinating search parties with people of the community coming to help. His tearful pleas for his wife's safe return could be seen on the news. On November 9th, just 17 days after she was reported missing, Katrina's body was discovered in the Rock River by an off-duty firefighter. An autopsy would soon reveal that she died from blunt force trauma to the head. The murderer left everyone in a panic as one question remained. Who would want to murder Katrina Smith? Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. Full show notes and sources can be found at tamsinleecrimsonsin.podbean.com or you can also find it in the description. So let's start today's case with a little bit about Katrina Smith. Katrina Smith was the middle child of three children Growing up, she was described as a very happy child. She was eight years older than her little sister Miranda, who stated that she always looked up to her big sister. 
Her brother described her as a person who enjoyed taking care of other people. She would always go out of her way to put others first. Katrina also attended Harlem High School, where a former teacher stated that Katrina was intelligent and mature for her age. Katrina lived and grew up in the small town McChesney Park, which is a part of Rockford, Illinois, a little town filled with industrial and manufacturing plants that offers employment to blue collars who work hard to make a better life for themselves. In 2003, Katrina met Todd Smith, who was working as a DJ while she was out having fun with her friends. They immediately knew there was a connection between them. Meeting Katrina's family, everyone had nothing bad to say about him, as they felt that he just fit right in with the family. Todd was 15 years older than Katrina, and he also had three daughters from a previous marriage. Her eldest stepdaughter stated that she immediately liked Katrina. She would always play with her and would remember details about things she was interested in. So she showed an interest in her new children and tried to connect with them, which really shows how great of a person Katrina was. She would also attend their cheerleading events and soccer games, just so she could cheer the girls on. Katrina was said to have been a very great stepmother or second mom to the girls. Soon the couple would get married. Katrina was just over the moon on her wedding day. Everyone in attendance could feel the love she had for her husband, and she was ecstatic to be taking this next step with him. No one ever questioned Katrina's love for her husband, and there was no doubt in their mind that she was happily married. The couple would run a family business, spending every day working together, but eventually Katrina would find a job in human resources at Cameron Industries, located in Belvedere. Her employers and colleagues would describe her as a great employee who never missed work. She never really shared with family and friends why she had stopped working with Todd. So this little bit of information was never explained to her family. On Saturday, October 20th, Katrina called her mother stating that she had a job interview later in the week. So she was also planning on leaving Cameron Industries for this new job that she was really excited about. She also told her mother on the phone that she would be coming over that Wednesday to talk to her about some things. No one really knows what she was planning on discussing with her mother, but her family had their own speculations. Around this time, Miranda noticed that there was something going on between Katrina and Todd. Her brother even received a voicemail from Katrina where she was crying, but she stated that she was... She was fine. She just really needed someone to talk to. So when officers received the missing persons call from Katrina's husband, they immediately began their search for her by calling relatives and friends. Investigators also began digging into her life to see if there was anything that would cause her to just up and leave. According to Todd Smith, the last time he saw Katrina was on October 22, 2012, before she left to house-sit for a friend. Her sister felt that there was something very wrong when Katrina disappeared. 
Like, she just had that gut feeling that something horrible had to have happened to her sister. But her brother thought and hoped that maybe she was staying with a friend, needing to take some time to think about things. Missing persons flyers were being printed and distributed throughout the town. Authorities were not releasing a lot of information to the media at this time in their investigation. However, they are receiving a plethora of clues as to what may have happened to her. One huge break in this case that provided a lot of clues for investigators was the discovery of Katrina's abandoned car. This discovery happened only a few hours after Todd had reported her missing. This finding really irked police, as now it put a new perspective on what may have happened to her. Because the location of where the car was at made no sense. There was no reason for her car to be on a street that was in a little neighborhood. And there was like a little wooded area off to the right of the car. There was a deep ditch and the car was parked in that ditch. So they felt something was really amiss. So most of the time when a person is missing and their vehicle is found without them, it generally sends off an unsettling feeling. A lot of questions started to form whether she was alive or dead, whether she was injured or being held captive. The authorities were constantly running through all of these scenarios, like basically preparing for the worst but hoping for the best. That's basically, I feel that's what the authorities were doing. The car was then towed and sent to be inspected for evidence and clues. One item that was found was a love letter to Katrina from Todd, where the contents proclaimed his undying love and devotion to her. Looking into her husband, Todd told investigators that Katrina and him had a normal marriage, about the average amount of fights, but never anything too serious. And he claimed that they did not have any marital issues. He even stated that the day before his wife's disappearance, the couple was discussing the possibility of adopting children. As authorities continued combing through Katrina's car for evidence, the community and her family sprang into action to help locate her. Complete strangers joined in on the family's search to locate their loved one. The community definitely didn't disappoint, as there were roughly 200 to 300 volunteers showing up to help find Katrina. Everyone felt the need to help locate her for her family and husband, who took center stage in the tragedy and massive search effort. Todd would do interviews where he was sobbing uncontrollably with many empathizing with him. With Todd having all of these supporters around him, it put a lot of pressure on authorities to figure out what happened to Katrina and give the community answers to their questions. On November 1st, 2012, a candlelit vigil was held for Katrina 
Todd was on the news thanking everyone for their work in finding Katrina and begging for his wife's safe return. Meanwhile, authorities were receiving a lot of tips and names of possible suspects. Investigators were able to find that Katrina had actually reported an incident that occurred in her neighborhood to police. She claimed that someone from her church had been stalking her, looking at her through her bedroom window. The person in question was a teenager who was described as having an unhealthy infatuation with Katrina. He was also attending a university at the time of her disappearance, leaving this individual to be the investigator's prime suspect. While they pursued this information and were trying to track down this teenager, authorities searched the area where Katrina's vehicle was found abandoned. In the dense woods, they were able to find Katrina's purse. Not far from this discovery, they found discarded towels, which appeared to have blood on them. Investigators believed these towels were used to clean something. They were also able to determine that Katrina's vehicle had been wiped clean. Katrina's DNA was ultimately found to be on those towels and in her car. Another clue that investigators were able to find was her cell phone, which appeared to be just dropped in some random bushes. It was like someone was walking down the street and just took the phone out of their pocket and just bloop right into the bushes and just kept walking. So the location of these items made it appear as if one or two people were just throwing these pieces of evidence as they were just walking around. But the location of these items were very weird places for someone to throw evidence away at. These items were easily found. They weren't hidden, they were just out in the open. Normally these stories involving a murderer get rid of these items in a more creative way. They may dig a hole and bury everything in one spot or just discard them to eventually be found in a landfill somewhere. But this person just threw Katrina's belongings and the bloodstained towels in areas that made it easily discoverable. Authorities were able to locate their suspected teenager and drove to the university to conduct an interview with him. He admitted to everything that he was being accused of that happened in the past. He admitted to stalking Katrina and all of that. But he had a verified alibi during the time of Katrina's disappearance. As he was at school and had a log of this to prove he was in attendance. As he was nowhere near town during the time of Katrina's disappearance, authorities had no choice but to eliminate him as a potential suspect. So needless to say, investigators were stumped when it came to who could have kidnapped Katrina. This is until they were able to look at the contents in her cell phone. Messages from a male co-worker. Authorities were able to determine that Katrina was having an affair with a co-worker, a supervisor at Cameron Industries. This information breathed 
new life into the case. As investigators quickly started to look into the person who had a questionable background, leading them to believe that they have the person responsible. The guy's name was Guy Gabriel. So Guy Gabriel had a brush with law enforcement in the past. This includes charges of aggravated battery with great bodily harm during a bar fight. However, he was found not guilty. A lot of people were shocked to learn of Katrina's affair because they appeared to be a happily married couple. Her mother and sister even stating that Katrina and Todd had a solid marriage and she was happier with Todd than with anybody she had previously been with. However, in the texts, there were some steamy messages between the two, with Guy telling her to just ask Todd for a divorce. As authorities were digging into Katrina's place of employment, they found out that roughly two weeks before Katrina's disappearance, a strange incident occurred in the parking lot, which included Guy Gabriel. Some of their colleagues were sitting outside when an unknown black VW pulled in driving quickly. The driver, who was masked and wearing gloves, then throws a handful of flyers out of the sunroof of the car and just speeds off. The vehicle also did not have any license plates. Naturally, the co-workers look at the flyers to see text referencing to Guy and Katrina. Katrina's name was shortened to Kat and it was spelt C-A-T and there was a profanity. So it would read Guy Profanity Cat. I'll let your imagination take over there. The flyer further stated that Guy won the bet. He was able to blank Katrina from HR in record time. It continued with even more vulgar contents. Investigators believed that Katrina's name was deliberately misspelled. It was also apparent that whoever did this wanted to cause problems for her at work. I mean, that was kind of obvious. They wanted all of Katrina's colleagues to know that her and Guy were having an affair. Authorities also found out that Katrina went to her phone company because she felt that someone was tracking her using her cell phone. A sales representative at the cell phone store stated that Katrina always appeared calm and collected, but on this particular day, there was clearly something wrong. She described Katrina's demeanor was just completely different. She appeared worried and scared. She was very fidgety. You know, she was jiggling her leg. She kept messing with her phone, placing it around on the table. So it was very apparent that she was scared. She was worried. And no one really knows why. But it was also found out that during this time, Katrina had actually asked her stepfather how to obtain an FOID card to legally possess a gun for protection. So it was obvious that she was afraid of somebody. With this information, Guy was becoming more and more suspicious to authorities because of his battery charges and Katrina's actions. So they grabbed him for an interview. 
Authorities believed they had the right person. They knew they were going to receive information about where Katrina Smith was. They were going to finally find some answers. But that's not how it went. While speaking with Guy Gabriel, it became apparent that this guy couldn't have been a part of Katrina's disappearance. He was extremely cooperative, gave investigators answers to all of their questions that they had for him. He allowed officers into his home and allowed them to search everything. Guy provided an alibi during the time of Katrina's disappearance, which was confirmed. He gave a very interesting story to police, which would change the course of the investigation. The day Katrina went missing, she had already told Todd that she wanted a divorce and that she was leaving him. According to Guy, she had already moved out of the house she shared with Todd. To support these claims, Guy even shared with investigators that he had saved the messages from Katrina. A few of these messages included, I've already told him I wanted a divorce. Appointment with attorney next Monday. Numerous times I've said I have nothing left to give. With these text messages, Todd suddenly becomes the focal point in the investigation. Because initially, when detectives talked to Todd, he told authorities that Katrina and him had this perfect marriage, which obviously is not the case. Investigators actually found that Katrina really did have an appointment with a divorce attorney. So it wasn't just talk. This was a legitimate plan of hers that she was going to go through with. In finding all of this out, investigators have to go back and look at all the evidence they have so far. Even looking over the love letter that was found in Katrina's car. What if this letter wasn't actually a love letter, but something that Katrina perceived to be more as a threat? So they had to sit there and reread the long love letter to see if there was any like double meanings, something that could be taken as a threat instead of something loving. You know, it, that's insane. Katrina's close family and friends had no idea that she had intended on ending her marriage, nor did they have any clue that she had in fact moved out. From this, we can only speculate that this is what Katrina wanted to talk to her mother about that Wednesday. Detectives also decided to look into the black VW that was seen driving through her employer's parking lot and had thrown all of those flyers out the sunroof. Authorities looked through every car lot to find the one matching the vehicle caught on camera at Cameron Industries. Surprisingly, there was only one match at a used car dealership. An employee at the lot told investigators that he knew Todd Smith. He had actually been in there recently for the black VW. Investigators were able to confirm that on October 9th, 2012, Todd Smith test drove that vehicle. This used car lot takes a photocopy of people's driver's license of everyone who test drives their vehicles. So that is how authorities were able to confirm this. So it makes Todd look highly suspicious. 
but it is basically only circumstantial. The employee at the car lot stated that he was dressed in dark clothing, possibly a hoodie. Again, but this is all circumstantial because it's more of a, you know, oh, what a coincidence. Todd denies that he was the one who went to her work and threw all of these flyers out his sunroof. But this instance isn't really considered a crime. I guess you could consider it harassment. But again, I don't really think there would have been really much that authorities could have done about this situation, dealing with the parking lot. In this investigation, not only did Katrina keep her divorce hushed from her family, but it turns out that she was hiding something else. The prosperous family business that Katrina's family thought Todd ran and that Katrina helped run at first was anything but. Todd had financial issues, yet was telling people that he had all of this money and that he was just so successful. But in reality, Katrina was the one making all the money. It turns out that Todd was being investigated by the FBI because he was involved in a wire fraud case. Soon investigators started receiving endless negative information about Todd and who he really was. Investigators continued digging into Todd Smith, who portrays himself as this successful businessman, to only find that he is not what he says he is. As he is already in deep legal issues, Federal prosecutors were investigating him after receiving a case regarding investment fraud of a person who was soliciting individuals through an insurance business to invest in a business called Electus Asset Holdings. Todd's partner in this venture had already been arrested in relation to this case, and now he is being investigated as a suspect. Todd's role in this scheme was to recruit investors. He would receive a commission off of these new recruits, off of these new investors. But the documents he was presenting to the investors were fraudulent. The paperwork stated that the investors' money was 100% guaranteed, that they could receive all of it back. But none of them did. However, this wasn't the only thing that Todd was hiding from everyone. As soon it would be revealed that he isn't really even Todd Smith. Originally, Todd's last name was Raprager. Todd Raprager originally grew up in McChesney, Illinois, where he lived with his mother, stepfather, and three younger half-siblings. A former classmate described him as this short, thin, quiet and attractive boy. She recalled him being in a band and just thought he was generally a nice kid, polite and friendly even. However, not many people really knew him, even in high school. He never spoke of his life outside of school. So his former classmate felt that there may have been something going on in his home life that he didn't want to talk about. So as long as their conversations revolved around school, he was fine. But don't talk about his home life. He didn't, he didn't want to share nothing. 
In March 1985, when Todd was 17, he had an argument with his family and decided to go for a walk. Before leaving on his walk, he unplugged the natural gas to the home. So while he was out on this walk, the house exploded and burned down. His stepfather told authorities that him and his wife were awoken by an explosion and the ceiling falling down on them. He got his wife and children out of the house, but Todd's stepfather was screaming for Todd. He thought he was still in the house and he wasn't able to get to him. But lo and behold, later on that night, Todd appeared An investigation into Todd resulted in the teenager confessing that he had disconnected the line to the natural gas. He further stated that he further stated that his intent was to start a fire to scare his mother. He didn't intend to kill or maim anyone in the home. He tried to justify this intent by stating that the reason he did it was because him and his mother had not been getting along for a while. With this confession, he waived his right to a jury trial and pled guilty to arson, receiving 30 months probation and 160 hours of community service. After finishing his probation and community service, Todd moved away. This is when he met his first wife, Teresa, when he was working at a factory. She was 21 at the time, and he was 20. The couple met at a party with some friends, and they just felt that connection. They really hit it off. To her, Todd was kind and fun to be around. She felt that he was genuinely a nice person. In 1992, the couple married in Jamaica. During that same year, Todd legally changed his last name to Smith, which is his biological father's last name. With his old life behind him, he embraced his role as a loving husband and father, Teresa even stating that Todd was very excited to be a father and described him as very loving, protecting, and attentive. His eldest daughter even recounted that he would notice if you were feeling down, if you were upset about something, and would listen completely, 100%, all ears on his daughters. He listened to their problems, and then he would offer comfort and advice. Teresa furthered that the beginning of their marriage and having children was the best years of her life. But after 10 years of marriage, the couple started having financial issues that started to break down their marriage. Todd would tell Teresa that he was employed in the insurance business, but she couldn't be sure of what he was actually doing. While money was coming in, it wasn't regular pay, like he wasn't receiving paychecks on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, so it wasn't a reliable form of income. Teresa further stated that after they had their third child, she started working. She was working a full-time and a part-time job. As she was the primary caregiver for the children while working two jobs, the stress and burden of their debt 
understandably became too much for Teresa, which that would be a very stressful situation, right? I mean, there are people out there that, you know, take care of their child full-time and have a full-time and a part-time job, but I can't even imagine how exhausting that is. So to add insult to injury with everything that was happening, Teresa stated that Todd would walk around telling people that he was successful and that he had this perfect home life. But in reality, Teresa was the one paying for everything. Like seriously, obviously she didn't mind working He could have, like, stayed home to take care of the kids. You know, if she didn't mind working and getting those paychecks, then, you know, if he wasn't really doing anything, he could have just stayed home with the kids while she went to work. But anyway, being consumed by debt, the family was soon forced to sell their home. Teresa and her three daughters would move in with Teresa's parents. So Teresa and Todd separated and shared custody of their three daughters. On October 6, 2001, Teresa was a victim of a brutal robbery and assault. This experience has haunted her for more than 20 years. After being separated for a few months, Teresa was arriving home. After parking her car in the driveway, she was carrying her keys and purse. She walked around the corner when she was suddenly punched in the face. Before her stood a man wearing a werewolf mask. The man then started punching and just beating her up, at which point she was on the ground. Eventually, she was able to get herself up onto her knees. And this is when the perpetrator came behind her, putting one hand under her chin and the other at the back of her head. She knew that this person was going to snap her neck. When the thought crossed her mind that her mother was going to find her dead in the yard the next morning, she had that sudden adrenaline rush, that fight-or-flight response that helped her to quickly stand up. And when she quickly stood, it caused her attacker to fall backward. And this gave her enough time to run into the house. One of her friends confirmed this claim, stating that she remembers when Teresa called her that night. She had to calm her friend down so that she could even understand what she was saying. She even reported the incident to authorities. In the report, it was stated that she believed the person who attacked her was her husband. Because even though he was wearing the werewolf mask, Teresa could still see his eyes, and she believed them to be Todd's. Which, she had spent nearly 10 years with the man, and to be honest, he does have a motive, right? She also stated that his stature and build was the same. Investigators confronted Todd of his whereabouts during Teresa's attack. He stated that he had been home the entire night. A few days later, Teresa questioned him, and still, he denied having anything to do with it. Fingernail scrapings taken from Teresa were compared to fibers that were taken off of a jacket that belonged to Todd. But the results were inconclusive. Teresa also had blood underneath one of her fingernails. 
which detectives wanted to use to compare against Todd, but he refused to cooperate. Without probable cause for a search warrant to obtain that DNA sample, the case was simply just closed. Normally, people would be frustrated by this decision, right? But Teresa stated that she was relieved because she was keeping this incident a secret. She didn't want her children finding out about what had happened, and she didn't want them to feel ashamed. Because if it was their father who did this to their mother, it would negatively impact their life. Teresa ended up remarrying in 2013, and her current husband believes that Teresa kept this a secret to protect her girls, setting this horrific circumstance aside so it would not burden or affect her children. Which I think we can all agree, if it was actually Todd who did this, then Teresa was a bigger person in this situation. I don't think I would have been able to handle it this way. I guess it would be easier to set it aside since it was apparent that he was not intending on hurting the children. But I feel like I would have a hard time with this. I would probably have a hard time coping with this. I would keep it a secret from my child, but I think I would struggle just dealing with it. Do you think Teresa did the right thing? Let me know what you think. By this point... It has been three weeks since Katrina's disappearance. On November 9th, 2012, authorities received a phone call from an off-duty fireman who was fishing on the Rock River in Byron, Illinois, which is roughly 20 miles from Rockford. He called to inform them that a body was discovered. Ryan Bruce, the off-duty fireman, was out fishing on Halloween night when his boat ran up on a log and he noticed something in the water. Ryan took out his flashlight, which did very little to help him determine what the object was. He couldn't make out what it was at all, so he just had this gut feeling that something was not right. So he waited for the next time he was able to go fishing during the day. Before he went fishing, he knew that he needed to go back to that spot so he could figure out what that object was. When he got closer to the area where his boat got stuck up on a log, he was 20 yards away when he was able to discern that what was floating in the river was a body. He immediately called the sheriff's department and waited for them to arrive. They identified the body to be Katrina's using dental records. The news devastated Katrina's family. There was a slight relief that they had found her, but the relief was overshadowed by their great sorrow. The following autopsy revealed to authorities that Katrina died from blunt force trauma to the head. She had been struck numerous times with a hard object right on the top of her head. Detectives stated that it was tremendous trauma. So this discovery turned the investigation from a missing persons to a homicide investigation. 
Authorities started searching around the area where Katrina's abandoned vehicle was discovered. They were knocking on doors, asking residents questions. They were then able to obtain footage caught by some of these individuals' security cameras. A few of these cameras caught a short-statured man walking down the street during a storm, wearing a hoodie that was pulled up. The footage was too grainy to determine who this individual was, not to mention it was too far a way to make any discernible detail about the man walking. But the physical description, his short stature, matched Todd's. Again, the footage is too grainy and the person in question is too far away. So authorities can only speculate that this person could potentially be Todd. It is also worth noting that this street is a dead end that leads to a field, which the person kept walking through. And from this field, there is a clear shot about a 10-minute walk straight to Todd's home. So it could be plausible that this mysterious figure walking in the middle of the night during a storm could be Todd. But investigators don't stop there. So back on October 30th, 2012, before Katrina's body was found, they were able to secure a search warrant for Todd's home, where they were able to take his laptop in for examination of its contents. The forensics team was able to find that Todd had a GPS tracking software on his laptop, which led authorities to believe that Katrina's fears of being tracked were legitimate. Another discovery in Todd's home was a baseball bat that was leaning in a corner in the garage. Investigators noticed some type of congealed substance on the bat. After having this substance tested, it was determined to be blood, which was then sent for DNA testing. The result for that showed that it was a positive match for Katrina's DNA. Authorities also noted that when Todd realized that investigators had taken the bat in for evidence, he became very upset. But after the discovery of Katrina's body, investigators had him come to the station for interviews. And one day, authorities started making accusations to him that he had some involvement in his wife's murder. Todd immediately grew very angry and demanded to have his attorney present. On November 21st, 2012, officers arrested Tom Smith, charging him with first-degree murder and one count of concealing a homicide. He pled not guilty to all charges. Everyone in the community instantly became enraged. Not because the police arrested Todd, but because they felt betrayed by this man. They had spent all of this time volunteering to find out where Katrina could have been. And he knew the entire time where she was. Or I should say, he knew she was never coming back the entire time. So people were pretty mad about this. But even though authorities believe they have the person responsible and that they had a lot of evidence, there wasn't anything directly pointing at Todd as the culprit. The baseball bat that was claimed to have been the murder weapon did not have Todd's DNA on it. 
prosecutors only had circumstantial evidence. And while it is strong circumstantial evidence, it's not something that definitively shows that Todd was the culprit. Todd's defense even filed a motion to get some of the evidence dismissed from court, including the laptop with the GPS tracking software, stating that there was no proof that Todd was using it to track Katrina's movements. This is when investigators decided to take another look at the laptop with the trial nearing. They conducted a second search of the laptop using new technology and software in 2016. Investigators were able to recover GPS logs that had been deleted. The tracking device was found to have still been on when he used Katrina's vehicle to dump her body. And when he detached the item from her vehicle, he was walking around with this tracker still on while dumping the evidence, such as her phone and her purse. And has him walking past the house with the security camera. The tracker places him at her vehicle, places him at all of the dump spots for the evidence. It has him walking past that camera, and it tracked him back to the front door of his home. Prosecutors believed that they had the person who murdered Katrina. They believed they had the undeniable evidence. Todd Smith's trial started on January 11, 2017. The trial was a big deal in the Rockford area, with most, if not all, of the locals following the case. The opening statements from prosecutors is something that I found very fascinating. They argued that Todd took the vow till death do us part a little too seriously. While Katrina wanted out of the marriage and to move on with her life with no possible chance at reconciliation, Todd decided to take matters into his own hands. To support their argument, prosecutors showed all the evidence they had collected, used the information found on Todd's laptop with the GPS tracker, and called on many different witnesses, including Guy Gabriel. Guy sat in the witness stand under oath and told everyone how unhappy Katrina was in her marriage to Todd. Prosecutors felt that their most crucial witness was Guy because the night Katrina disappeared, she sent him that message stating that she told Todd she wanted a divorce. The opening statements from the defense was a bit more underwhelming. The argument was literally that authorities rushed to judgment and they have the wrong guy. A direct quote from Todd's defense stated, This case is completely built on a shaky foundation of rumors and speculation. His defense argued that investigators narrowed in on Todd without really looking into other possible suspects. They further pointed their finger at Guy Gabriel as a possible suspect because just a month prior to this trial, Guy had actually been arrested for aggravated domestic battery. In the report that they had obtained, his wife stated that after an argument, he knocked her to the ground and slammed her head into the pavement at least three times. She also claimed in the report that they had had domestics in the past. The defense called on the officer who was dispatched to this incident as a witness. 
So Todd's defense was showing the jury that Katrina was having an affair with a man who was violent, which does raise legitimate concerns, right? However, Guy Gabriel pled guilty to the aggravated domestic battery charge. So in Katrina's case, Guy had an ironclad alibi as he was at work. And the security camera's footage further solidified the fact that he was there when all of this was happening to Katrina. This footage was shown to the jury also. But prosecutors put on quite a show for the jury. While presenting closing arguments, the prosecutor took the bat that Todd supposedly used and demonstrated just how he would have used it on the night Katrina was murdered. So after two weeks of testimony and listening to 40 witnesses, it was time for the jury to deliberate. They found Todd guilty of first-degree murder. Relief filled the room for Katrina's family, friends, and the entire community. However, Todd slumped in his chair, completely dumbfounded by the verdict. On April 4, 2017, Todd attended his sentencing hearing where Katrina's family read their statements. As Katrina's mother tearfully read her statement, Todd sat in his chair, unwilling to look at her, wearing a smirk. Todd also read his own statement where he still proclaimed his innocence in the incident and continued that even though he did not commit the crime, he harbors no ill will against the state. He was then sentenced to 55 years in the Department of Corrections for the first-degree murder charge and an additional four years for the concealment of a homicidal death. Todd was also indicted for his alleged role in the wire fraud case. But before he could enter a plea, the government decided to dismiss the charges. Todd Smith remains in the Illinois State Penitentiary to this day. His eldest daughter would talk to him over the phone, but broke off all communication with him when he refused to tell her the truth about what really happened to Katrina that day. But Todd has continued to maintain his innocence in the case and filed an appeal against the ruling, claiming that he did not receive a fair trial. This appeal has been denied, so the earliest he is eligible for parole is in 2069 when he is 102 years old. So what did you think of today's case? Do you think Todd Smith is guilty? Do you think Katrina receives justice? Let me know your thoughts and case requests in the comments. Also, don't forget to like, follow, or subscribe for more truly bizarre crime cases. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!